I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? It takes pushing yourself to that extreme level to really, uh, to, to really find that. But I know who I am, what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy, my weaknesses, my faults, my strengths. And that applies whether you're talking sport or you're talking business now or uh, learning or being a husband or being a father. So again, I think that self-knowledge is self-mastery. I really believe that. And when you get to know yourself over time through that process, um, it's, it's helpful. Blas Moros is a writer, thinker, entrepreneur, and so much more. He's the man behind Sean's favorite website, The Rabbit Hole, that is filled with book recaps, thought-provoking essays, and other amazing content. Blas is at it again with his latest project, The Lattice Work. If you're into lifelong learning, mental models, and multidisciplinary approaches to life, then you will love The Lattice Work. It's a site pulling the most important lessons from all of the major disciplines, and we think this is going to be an essential read for any high performer. On this episode, Sean and Blast discuss some of the most important lessons he's learned from playing elite tennis, studying the world's best thinkers, and reading over 600 plus books. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Bloss, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a, one of those conversations that I'm so excited for other people to take part in. I've been fortunate enough to get to know you and, and learn about some of just your thinking processes, your business philosophies, everything like that. So this is honestly a true honor for me. So this is going to be fun, but I would love to start at your backstory. And I know you were a huge competitor, big into tennis. I would love to know how you first got into tennis. Yeah, I got a tennis racket from my uncle when I was just three. And uh, it was too big, so it dragged on the ground when I walked around with it. And the story is that I sort of slept with it, and it was just love at first sight. And I played pretty much every sport until I was 12 or 13. And then I decided to go all in on tennis. And that meant practice every day after school, tournaments on the weekends, all that good stuff. But it's been a huge part of my life, and I think it shaped a lot of who I am and how I think about the world by pushing myself and trying to become the best version of me. And that was one of the key lessons I, I got out of the whole thing is it's hard to and destructive to compare yourself to other people. There's always going to be someone more talented, somebody better than you, but are you a little bit better than who you were yesterday, than what you could do yesterday? And that 
uh, has shaped a lot of who I am today. Oh, I, I love hearing about that. So I would love to know, were you more focused on becoming your best or becoming one of the best? Yeah, absolutely my best. And um, again, that ended up being a pretty good tennis player. I uh, ended up being captain of the Notre Dame tennis team my senior year and had a pretty good season and all that. But becoming a pro and making that a, a full-time living wasn't really in the cards for me. And that was okay. I, I felt like I really got to become the best version of me. And that's a really good feeling. And of course, there's things I felt like I could have done better. And um, maybe I didn't max out my potential totally, but I got pretty close. And that whole process was really, really informative. And I learned a lot from it. Why did you select tennis? You mentioned all the other sports. I'm wondering why you didn't go forward in one of those as opposed to tennis. Yeah, it's a good question. I think some combination of I enjoyed it the most and I just felt better at it. There's some aspect of the individual that I really enjoyed that it was on me, whether I won or lost. And there's great things with that and there's bad things with that. And uh, tennis, golf, swimming attracts a certain type of person, I would say, a little bit different from a team sport. And Loved the team sports, loved everything about that. And again, like I mentioned, I did most sports until I was relatively, uh, you know, 12 or 13 or so. But I love that aspect of it being all on me, uh, putting myself out there, seeing what I had that day, dealing with the nerves. And that really attracted me. So it, it wasn't a really, really conscious choice uh, when I was 12 or 13, but it ended up shaping my life in a lot of ways. I always love talking to people with athletic experiences, and I'm always interested about the narrative in their head. And a lot of times around practice, and I would love to know what that was like when you were when you were there just by yourself, grueling drills. What was the narrative in your head? Yeah, uh, I loved practice. I loved every minute of it, and it was a grind, right? Uh, it was hours and hours a day. And growing up and playing in Florida, that humidity during the summer was pretty brutal. But it prepared me. It made me better. It made um, most match days relatively easy. It's not three four hours on the court. It's you know a couple hours and. You're relatively, uh, you're relatively fresh at the end of it. So practice was the difficult part for me. Uh, match day was a little bit easier and different stresses, different emotions, different pressures, all that good stuff. But I think I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed the craft. I enjoyed honing my skills over time. And I don't want to make this out more than it was, right? I was a, a really good junior, uh, junior player and I was a, a decent college player, nothing more than that. But again, the uh, that process of coming to know yourself, that self-realization, uh, that authenticity, getting to know what pushes you, what buttons you have, what makes you better, what makes you worse. I think sport or art or craft, whatever that is, pushing yourself to that highest level, it, it's really beneficial. Have you found reoccurring themes that you discovered during your time playing tennis that now are applicable both into being a father, husband, uh, leader, business, entrepreneur, all of those things? It's a great question. And yes, absolutely. I think you as a person, um, you get to know who you are pretty clearly. And again, it takes pushing yourself to that extreme level to really, uh, to, to really find that. But I know who I am, what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy, my weaknesses, my faults, my strengths. And that applies whether you're talking sport or you're talking business now or uh, learning or being a husband or being a father. So again, I think that self-knowledge is self-mastery. I really believe that. And when you get to know yourself over time through that process, um, it's it's helpful. Oh, Vlas, you're, you're teasing out the really hard stuff, right? Looking in the mirror, facing some of those harsh realities. And uh, this is one of those things I just love so much. So how early on did you start to tease out and understand, okay, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, and then really focusing and, and distilling out which ones you're going to focus on? Tennis-wise, really early, uh, and I think because the feedback loop is so quick, right? You do something for a match and you lose, you you know, you know get to learn that pretty quickly. But over time through practice, you get to hone those strengths. And, you know, uh, I was kind of just a baseline grinder. Uh, you really had to beat me. I didn't have any overwhelming strength, but I was never going to lose. Uh, I was never going to lose. I was never going to beat myself. And I built my game around that. But these other things that maybe we can dive into a little bit later, but most of it just came through self-reflection and it came after I graduated from college and uh, really for the first time ever had time to, to think and be bored. And through juniors and through high school, uh, my days were so busy, you know, practice in the morning, school, uh, some more practice, some homework, bed, repeat. I'm sure you can relate with your lacrosse experience, but um, after college, it changed a lot and gave me a little bit of space and time to think about all those things that I had learned and really how it applied. and. Um, yeah, it takes a lot of self-reflection. A lot of it is not immediate 
whatsoever. It takes time to for it to sink in or for you to digest it and to, to really understand how those how these things apply to you. Yeah, that's going to be a, a large part in this conversation. And really what I wanted to distill down was about what you did after college. But I would love to just know, what made you decide on Notre Dame? Yeah, I don't know how intellectual it was. I, I was recruited by a couple of really good schools. I ended up going out to visit three or four of them. And, you know, some of the top schools in the country. But when I went to Notre Dame, it just felt right. The coaches were really down to earth. The team was great. Um, yeah, I'd never been there. I didn't really grow up knowing Notre Dame football. So it wasn't any of those traditions. It was just the the team and some combination of tennis and business school that I knew I wanted to do that really captured me. And, you know, uh, I had a great time. I learned I learned a lot. Uh, that team, uh, they're some of my best friends still today. So uh, I'm happy with my choice. It's hard to know what other scenarios would it look like, but uh, nothing to complain about. No, that's fantastic to hear. I always love people that when they make one of those big decisions, because I mean, essentially making one of the biggest decisions of your life when you're 16, 17 year olds and, and having it work out, that's, that's always good to hear because I, I think you and I are familiar with many of the people that didn't work out for, unfortunately. But let's talk about that graduation. And you bring up one of the most interesting points in, we've both been able to see this amongst other athletes. Once you graduate, you're no longer a student athlete. And that athletic component for the majority of those people is no longer there. And, and where's that focus? Where's that drive? Where's that energy? Where's that going to? And, and you had an amazing essay that distilled down what you wished you had when you graduated. And I would love for you even just to, to step back and start, what were, what were you thinking about when you graduated? And then maybe we can tease out some of those key things you brought up in your essay. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the essay you're referring to, I call it the infinite game. And one of the key lessons I learned, and we've touched on this already actually, is that through this process of craft, through honing uh, your mastery, through, through that process, you get to learn a lot about yourself. And that's helpful no matter what you end up doing after sport or after music or whatever, whatever it is that is your passion. And it's no longer a finite game, which James Karst does a beautiful job talking about, where you're playing to win or you're playing for the sake of playing. And sport, by definition, and a lot of other games are finite games. There's a winner and a loser. It's zero sum. Um, it's hierarchical. It's status seeking. And what Cars talks about infinite games is it's bigger than that. You're playing just for the joy of it. And of course, I didn't have these words and I didn't have these thoughts to reflect on at the time of graduation. But looking back, so much of this is applicable and I find really powerful. So that, that essay, The Infinite Game, I wrote it, like you said, as something I wish I had when I had graduated myself and had gone through a lot and put a lot of thought into what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, what that looks like and what I would never regret. So at the time, you know, uh, <laughs> I graduated and kind of thought about what I wanted my life to look like when I was 80 years old. Uh, what would I never regret? And of course, later I come to know Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework and all these beautiful things, but I didn't have those words at the time. So it was just a, a simple exercise in my head. And I got to the point that I figured I would never regret reading. I would never regret learning, traveling, meeting fascinating people. So since that point, uh, six or seven years from now, uh, I'll go, excuse me, that's what I've structured my life around. And what you see with the rabbit hole and a new project that we'll talk about soon, that's the culmination of that effort where those three to four hours that I would spend playing tennis, they're, new they're now dedicated to my new pursuit, to my new quote unquote sport. And that was reading and learning. So every day after work, instead of going to practice, going to tennis, going onto the court, training, going to the gym, it would be going to the library, sitting down and reading and learning. And that's the only thing I knew for a really long time. That was my structured life. And I fell into that habit, uh, I think, positively rather than, you know, I think you would know also from lacrosse, once you lose that sense of mastery, once you lose that uh, structure from sport, it's pretty easy to just let everything unravel. And then you have no structure in your life. You don't really know what direction you're going. You don't know what your passions are anymore. At least that was the case for me, where so much was tied up with tennis and school. And then almost from one day to the next, that all disappears. So this structure of every day before work and after work, taking a couple hours to, to sit down and read and learn and think and write uh, has been hugely beneficial for me. And again, uh, some of that is what you see with the rabbit hole and other other projects. Yeah, I, I love you You bring up James Carse's approach and the infinite games and, and everything you've laid out there no matter what point you are at your life or in your life, it's going it's to be beneficial. And there are so many long-term benefits, not only for you, but also the other people in your life that you surround yourself with. So I love hearing about that. I would love even just to dig into your process a little bit, just, just to realize that you could step back because we have a lot of young 
college athletes that have just graduated, just finished up, and they're thinking, how, how do I even approach this? So were you just sitting down in your room journaling? What did that look like for you? Yeah, it was a lot of uh, brute force. It was a lot of mistakes and uh, false paths gone down. And at some level, I think everyone has to go through that a little bit, right? To figure out a process that works for them. And there's no, I don't think there's any one right way to do it, but what do you enjoy? What do you get something out of? Um, is that sci-fi to start? Or do you like biographies? Are you into business? Are you into history? And I think you just start with what interests you. And eventually that pie will expand as you get to know more and more and as you get more and more curious. But it's a muscle like any other, Sean, I think, where you can start small, you can start light, but start with what enjoys, what makes, what what's fun for you. And from there, you can expand a little bit. But yeah, it, it's a skill, it's a muscle. So at the beginning, I started reading and a couple books in, a couple months in, I figured I'm not smart enough to remember absolutely everything I read. So at some point in the future, I'll probably have to reread all these books I've already read. So instead of doing that, I started taking notes. I started highlighting. I started you know, using Evernote and sharing some of that with my friends. And yeah, it takes a little bit longer in the moment, but three, four, five, seven years from uh, that day, like I am today, instead of having to reread an entire book, I can just go back to my notes and get the majority of what I got out of that book relatively quickly. And so that's one of the key benefits, but it also helps you see patterns and connect these threads between books, between themes, between time, really, and pick up on some of these larger um, larger patterns that I think are really important. And that, that process of synthesizing and distilling these core ideas from all these various books, um, again, has been really helpful for me. And it's it's across the board, it's investing, it's business, it's life, it's relationships. So that that's a bit of my process and happy to go into any more detail that you want. Yeah, I would love to go even deeper, but you bring up one of those really interesting points just about how applicable these are in so many avenues, whether that be sport, business, personal life, everything. And, and that's what I love. And I think that's what resonates so much is that you've distilled down and discovered these patterns. You, you were mentioning just kind of like your overall framework a second ago. And how clear does your vision need to be? Because I think when a lot of people are trying to answer some of these big questions, they, they focus so much on the details. So I would just love to hear about your approach with that. Yeah, I think it needs to be crystal clear. And that doesn't mean easy. That doesn't mean it comes right away. It takes years and years and years. And I don't even know if, you know, I have a crystal clear vision yet. But uh, Richard Hamming has been another intellectual hero for me and his book, Learning How to Learn. Uh, all the YouTube videos are fantastic and Stripe Press just released a new book that is beautiful. But he talks a little bit about this. And, you know, I, what I got from what some of what he said was, if you don't know what you're looking for, it's pretty hard to know what to find. And he talks about this and you and your research and um, you get what you measure in a couple of those beautiful essays. But if you don't know where you're going, again, it's hard to know if you're on the right path. And I think of these as little golden threads in a lot of ways where if you have a crystal clear vision, you'll you'll recognize it when it passes you and you can pull on it. But again, if you're wandering a little bit and you're not really sure what you're looking for, or where you're going, those opportunities come by pretty often, but you don't recognize them. And that takes hard work. It, it takes a lot of self-reflection, a lot of uh, getting to know yourself and who you are and what you want to be and what you want to do. And again, I don't I don't think I'm there, but it's the process. And that part's been really fun. Yeah, it's that ongoing process for sure. And and Hamming, one of one of my favorite things that he brings up is talking about what's the most in, important thing in your field, and then why are you not focusing on that? And so Hamming's just got some beautiful stuff. We'll link that up in the show notes. And like you just mentioned, uh, his book is now re-released, and that's a now you don't have to spend a thousand dollars on it. So that's absolutely fantastic to hear. I, I would love to know though, because I mean, you went deep in, in the, distilling all this down. Were you a huge learner and reader? prior to this? Or was this kind of an epiphany-esque moment where once you graduated, you became one? Yeah, not at all. I was I was always really good in school, but I did the minimum I could possibly do to do well. And that meant no extra credit. That meant no, no books for fun. That meant skipping the book to get the general idea. So it was really, tennis was the focus. And then my parents from a pretty young age made it very clear that if I didn't do well in school, there would be no tennis. So I understood that pretty quickly. But School was something I had to do, not something I ever enjoyed. And it was really only after the fact, after tennis was gone and I had space, I had uh, a moment, I had energy to devote to other things because for 10 years or so, 12 years or so, it was all tennis, after school, weekends. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to that. So all of a sudden I had this energy physically, mentally, emotionally to dive into other things, to explore new curiosities. So it, it really was, I don't know if it was an epiphany, I would say it's more of a gradual, slow, 
um, incline than something that just happens overnight. But it was definitely a, an after graduation moment for me. Bloss, you, you bring up another one of those things and you keep mentioning space and come on, we're, we're in 2020 social media, we're, we're constantly connected. There's no such thing anymore. So uh, I'm wondering how do people find the time uh, to get that space? And is there anything you yeah. recommend? Yeah, I, I, I don't think any of it's rocket science. You know, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. So anytime there's a little bit of space, something wants to fill it. That's just the the nature of the world. And it takes effort. It takes effort to, to give yourself that, that time and that space. And um, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to say anything that's revolutionary here, but it's setting aside a couple hours for yourself um, as often as you can. If it's every day, amazing. If it's on the weekends, if it's at night, but finding that space that you get to pursue something that you really enjoy. And that could be writing, rereading. It could be anything, but something that allows you to go deep and sort of get into flow and disappear from the world. And you get rid of notifications. You know, you you put your phone away for a little bit and you just give yourself that that ability to be in your own head. And it's not easy, but again, I think it's a muscle, it's a habit, it's a system you can develop over time that for me, again, has proven hugely beneficial. Yeah. You, you mentioned it's not rocket science, but it's not easy. And I think that's one of the key things. And a lot of this comes down to game selection because you mentioned you're going to escape in time and, and flow is going to hit you. And if this is not something that you're really truly driven by. I think it's going to be tough to, to, to come into those zones at time. But I, I would love even jumping further into the rabbit hole, which is your website, blasblas.com. But I would love to know, what was the first book you picked up after school that just something clicked and it was, oh, th there's something here, something much bigger. You know, it's a really simple, really short book, but it's The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And I, I, again, you know, it's maybe a, a 40 or 50 page book. Language is super simple, but it struck me at the moment. And still today, it's one of my favorite books, just how, how powerful some of those ideas are. And like you said, they're all simple, but not necessarily easy, right? It's trying your best. It's uh, being impeccable with your word. It's not taking anything personally. And he just... I think he just does a beautiful job laying these ideas out in a simple framework. And to me, it just seemed obvious that if you could abide by those most of the time, that it would improve my life. So that, that that's one book that early on had a pretty, pretty big impact on me. I would love to know just the evolution process for the rabbit hole. And I mean, you mentioned just kind of starting off, distilling things down, sharing them amongst your friends, maybe some family members. How did that become to a much bigger thing than it is today? And uh, I've said this over and over again, and so I'm just going to say it again. Your website uh, is my favorite thing on the internet in terms of <laughs> distilling down the lessons. I mean, 500 plus books, your essays, all of it, I, I'm just obsessed with and I share it more than anything else. I want to thank you first and foremost. But how did that come to be? How did you, you make the leap and turn it into something much greater? Uh, thanks, Sean. That means a lot. And <laughs> I think it's done from laziness. <laughs> I, I was writing all these notes and sharing them sort of one by one on email, and it grew from friends and family and maybe you know, 10 or 12 people to 50 to 100. It just became unwieldy. So I said, you know, enough with this. Let's just create a simple website. I'd never done that in my life. WordPress made it super simple. And six or seven years later, again, this gradual incremental progress, it's added up to a lot of books, and it feels like a lot of people have gotten some value out of it. So that part of it feels good, but there was no master plan. There was no, I want to build a, an audience. I never thought that there would be an audience. I was just sort of putting out my my summaries and things that I found interesting on there. And in the last year or two, started writing some essays, which I think have resonated with some people as well. So there was no there was no master plan at all going into it. It was sharing things that I thought was was worthwhile and was interesting. And that's the beautiful thing about scale, about the internet, that you can find a community, you can find a niche, no matter how. Uh, nerdy or esoteric you are like uh, like I might be but it, it attracts a certain type of person it's been really fun to see that grow and um, people to reach out saying that they've gotten value out of it so that makes me feel good yeah I mean an another beautiful thing as well is just what that's evolved to be and you mentioned there wasn't some grand master plan but but now just sitting back distilling down looking at it I, I would love to to even hear your thoughts when someone first goes onto that website what do you what are you hoping they're getting out of that yeah, I think it's a lot of it is a choose your own adventure, right? So there's over 600 books summarized there now, uh, philosophy, business, history, uh, architecture, psychology, philosophy. I mean, there's all these different areas that I found interesting. And again, there's no rhyme or reason to a lot of the books that I've read, but they interested me in the moment and they felt like the most important, most interesting thing to me when I picked that book up. And that's a lot of how I've approached this process. I mentioned in school, I can't remember reading too many books in high school and college. And again, I did well, but it was because I 
went to class and listened and not because I was doing all this work, but I really only started reading for fun after school. And something I realized was when I'm being forced to learn something, I push back. I really don't like it. But when it's self-education, when it's something that I'm choosing to learn about, when I'm educating yeah, myself, I have all the energy and passion in the world to go do it. But if somebody told me to go read these books that you see on the website that I voluntarily chose, if they told me to do that, I don't think I'd do it. And maybe that's just my nature and maybe that's a, a flaw in my personality, but I don't like, I, I don't like having, uh, being forced to do any of these things. So anyway, I think there's no hope. There's no hope that people get a certain thing out of this website. It's just things that I found valuable and um, if people stumble on it and find some value there, amazing. And uh, if not, I, I understand this is a, a strange little corner of the internet that maybe not too many people are um, too excited about, but it fuels my fire and the people who are excited about it seem to find it. Well, maybe that's a, a flaw in, in both of our personalities because I'm the exact same way. Uh, l- let me discover it on my own, and I, I'm, I will put every ounce of energy I have towards that. And I think that's, that's what I love so much about your site. There's so many different things uh, to, to pick on, to pull out, to look at, to read. And I would even love to know, how do you select what you're going to go next? You, you mentioned just kind of what's, cur- what's curious and what's, what's pulling out your curiosities. How do you select the signal versus the noise with, with everything out there now? Yeah, there's a, a principle in biology, this exploration versus exploitation. And if you're in a very stagnant environment, exploiting the resource that you know is there makes sense, right? Um, not too much changes. You know there's a surefire food source or water source. You keep exploiting that over and over again. But in an environment that's constantly changing, that's dynamic, exploring is far more valuable. So you go try new areas, you try to find new water sources, new food sources to go different, you know, you go to different places. So there's some balance there between exploration and exploitation and call it serendipity, call it luck, call it structure, call it order. All these different words get at a lot of the same things, but that's how I have come to think about a lot of these book selection process. There's some balance and the other books, the, um, you know, the 600 or so other book summaries that you see on the website is some balance of the uh, exploration. So a little bit random, a little bit of serendipity falling in there. And um, again, sometimes there's a really good reason. A couple of friends have recommended a book. Sometimes there's a, a footnote in a book I love that led me on to something else. Um, so it's a little bit all over the place, but rough background. No, I, I love hearing about that. And, and Michael Mobison is someone who even hit on that exploration versus exploitation a little bit more. We can dive into your process for, for what you read, because I know you distilled it down in one of your essays, but I would love for you just to give a little preview into, into what that looks like, because I think so many people, when they pick up a book, they explore a new concept. They're not exactly sure how to tease out the key concepts. So I would love to hear your process on that. Yeah, for sure. And again, I think it's a muscle. It's a skill that gets built over time. And when I started this, there was no rhyme or reason. There was no um, process that I could talk about. So it, it just takes time. But the way that I go about it is, again, I have a relatively high filter for what I read at first. I have a couple of friends that I trust. If they recommend it or if it comes from a different, a couple of different sources, I tend to just buy it and it sits on my shelf and at some point I get to it. But what I do, if I'm not captivated by it right away, if I can't read the, the, the epilogue and the conclusion and know from a big picture what this thing is about and I'm not excited by it, I just put it down and I have no, no problem with that. But the books that I do get excited about, I go pretty deep. Uh, it feels like a conversation with the author where there's highlights, there's notes, there's things I want to ask them if I ever have the opportunity, things that weren't clear to me, things that I want to understand a little bit deeper. And for me, what took a long time and I think is a pretty difficult step, at least it was for me, was moving from the intellectual to the to the real world. So how can I take these ideas that are really exciting to me on paper and apply them in my day-to-day life so that they're not just beautiful ideas that, again, sound good on paper, they're concrete, they're actionable, they're tangible, that I can take to work, that I can take to my relationships, I can I can take to my broader life and it helps them improve. So for me, just having those questions in the back of my mind as I'm reading has been really, really helpful. So it's not a purely intellectual exercise, it's a pragmatic one. And I think the, um, the definition of a good book is how much it impacts your life, how much it changes your life. And if it doesn't, you know, uh, I would argue that the value of reading that book wasn't that great, but you could read a simple book like Don Miguel Ruiz's Four Agreements, like I mentioned earlier, and it could have a tremendous impact on your life. So a little bit about my process there. No, I, I love hearing about that. And it's always just funny to hear different people's processes. So I'm wondering, just even in the broader context of your life, busy work life, family, 
how do you balance all of this, then find the time to really focus in on some of these key lessons and learnings? Yeah, I make it a priority. So I get up early. I've always been an early riser. And those two-ish hours in the morning before work is kind of my sacred time. It's when I have my space and almost nobody bothers me at that time in the morning. So I really get to, to decouple and to do these things that I really enjoy with, whether it's writing or reading or distilling these notes, but just make it a priority. And it doesn't mean, you know, I get up at 5.30 or so. So it's not four. It's nothing really, really ridiculous. But I need to make sure that I have that time for myself and the beautiful thing with this, Sean, is it, it bleeds over and helps every other aspect of my life. So it's not like it's sacrificing family life or it's sacrificing work. It's all it's all interconnected. It's all one. And the, the benefits of sitting down and reading and uh, synthesizing these ideas benefits each of them. So it's, um, yeah, it, again, it's a habit. It's a system I created over time, but it's one that works for me. And some people might, you know, do it over lunch or they might do it at night after work if, um, you know, if that works for them. But for me, it's first thing in the morning. It's really important, I think, just to hit on that you said it's a system you've built over time. So I think a lot of people will read an article about the most productive people or how they get this done. And unfortunately, they think all of this needs to happen overnight. And it's, yeah. it's a never-ending, ongoing process, which I think is really, really important. But I would love to even hit, I mean, you've got a, a list on there of, of books you want to read or books that you recommend rereading. And I would love for you just to distill down and pull out just a few of your favorite all-time reads. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Every December, I do a recap of the books that I've read in that year. And for me, it's helpful to take a step back and not add more information, but to, to try to distill down and again, see those connections. And last December, I noticed that it had come out to about 5% of books I've read fall into this worth rereading list. And I don't think if I read only those books from the beginning that they would have the same impact. I think it takes a lot of content. I think it takes a lot of ideas and, you know, maybe bad books or books that you don't really love to be able to understand a really good book and what those things mean. So I think that that content, that structure, those, those extra books that didn't fall into that worth rereading list are still incredibly valuable. But anyway, that, that worth rereading list are no brainers that when I was reading it and when I finished it had a humongous impact on me. And it could be a bunch of different ways. Um, but some of them, Lessons of History, Port Charlie's Almanac, and some a little bit, uh, you know, more off the beaten path, but there's um, a book by Henry Ford that is just fantastic, and another one by um, Mr. Firestone that I haven't seen on too many lists, but uh, Men in Rubber is the one by Mr. Firestone, and it's just fantastic, and it's interesting. After time, after a little bit of time, I've noticed that a lot of business books from the early to mid 1900s strike a chord with me. And I think it's because of the simplicity with which they're written. There's no, there's no fancy language. There's no MBAs who are writing this. These are the men who created these incredible companies who, you know, maybe they have a ghostwriter, but it's their, it's their words. And it's just simple and it's raw. And um, anyway, I find them beautiful, but that's kind of what I, um, the types of books that fall into my worth free reading list. It's funny you mentioned Ford and Firestone. Uh, so I'm about a half mile right now from where they spent their winners. So it was Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, and then Firestone. Yeah. And so all throughout where I'm at, there's just these beautiful pictures of the three of them. And you're thinking three of the the greatest generational titans to build yeah. businesses all just hanging out. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of their books. They're, they're back on the bookshelf as well. Uh, what about some of just the, the big essays you've written? It's, it's funny, your essays, uh, I, I tend to go back to again and again, because I think you cut out all of that signal or all that noise. It's just pure signal. Uh, I would love to know this sitting back, stepping and looking at some of the essays you've written. Are there any for, for listeners of this show that you think, hey, if you're going to give this a try, this would be a great one to start with? Yeah. Uh, first, thank you. That's uh, I was never really a writer in college, and it's uh, somewhat of a painful process in some ways, kind of going back and refining and editing. And it's uh, it's been a fun process, but I think making uh, becoming a good writer makes you a clearer thinker, uh, a sharper thinker. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to get out of that process. And it, I think it depends a little bit, Sean, but the the infinite game that we talked about a little bit earlier, it's geared more towards student athletes just because of the ego, the identity that we've sort of built around our sport. And at least for me, that transition from sport to no sport was somewhat difficult. So if you're a student athlete, I think that's a really good place to start. But there are a couple of different ones that I found fun, the inverted hierarchy, challenging times um, mattering equals meaningful. There are some interesting ones that we can dive into, but I don't know if there's a, there's no right place to start. Absolutely. I think um, 
uh, one thing that we've talked about already, but what do you find joyful? What sparks your curiosity? What sparks your interest? And everyone's a, a little bit different. So I think it, it's up to the reader. Choose your own adventure. See what resonates with you. Yeah, plenty there. And the thing is, there there's not an overwhelming amount in the essays. And I think that's what you do really well. It, it's not overly complicated. Uh, it, it's just beautiful and distilled down. But uh, you mentioned just some of your, your favorite themes throughout some of them. Uh, any any come to mind now that you really love and maybe might be non-traditional and a lot of people haven't heard of, but once you start exploring, really can pique someone's interest and, and open their eyes? Yeah, I, we can go into maybe the inverted hierarchy. I think that's a, a relatively simple idea, but hierarchies are a fundamental organizational structure of nature. They've evolved over time. And it, if you think about it, it's a simple logic chain, right? You have to have square one in, a, in order to build off of that to get to square two. And that's how you end up with this hierarchical pyramid structure. And I think that's just a natural byproduct of evolution. But we're no longer in a, in a world of scarcity. We're no longer in this uh, zero-sum world anymore. And I think that's shaped a little bit how we should think about how we interact with others and how we shape organizations. And the core of that essay inverts that hierarchy. So it says that what used to be the top of the hierarchy is now the bottom. So there are a bunch of different terms for it. And you know, servant leadership, and I think, is the, the key one that comes to mind. But I think if you flip it and you understand that the CEO or the leader has the responsibility of taking care of everybody, you know, what used to be on below that hierarchy that's now on top of him, you get very different incentive structures, you get very different goals, you get very different behaviors from everybody in the organization. So I think Danny Meyer does a really good job talking about some of this. Um, at Glenera, we do a really good job thinking through and talking about a lot of this. So it's it's a topic that hits home in a lot of different ways because I'm, I'm living it and I've read from a couple of different people and learned from a couple of different people, but it was my, my take on it and why from <clears throat> maybe an evolutionary biology, uh, bi biological perspective, this inverted hierarchy might be the, the correct route to go in today's day and age. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that as well. And you mentioned Danny Meyer of Union Square Hospitality Group and in his book, Setting the Table, uh, does a great job really, really pulling this out and saying how they do it. Uh, their organization. Um, what about some of these teacher reference guides? So you have the books, you have the essays you do, and then you also have these teacher reference guides. So I'd love for you just to even describe what they are, and then maybe we can dive into one or two of them. Yeah, absolutely. So this teacher's reference guide is just a deep dive on a particular topic, subject, or person. And mentioned it a little bit ago, but everything from complexity, which has probably had the the biggest impact on me and how I think about the world, to Bruce Lee, who is a beautiful philosopher and thinker, uh, to Walt Disney, to Paul Graham, um, all kind of all over the map. And I think that encapsulates my learning process. There's no real theme that you can pull between all of them. Again, it's just things that I found incredibly interesting in the moment that I went really deep on. And again, I, I know I'm not smart enough to just recall everything I ever read. So putting these things together serves as a useful guide for me three, five, 10 years out to be able to look back and really see the threads that I pulled on and what were the key takeaways. And um, again, the book's always there. It's always highlighted. It's sitting on my shelf if I want to go back to the source material. But this teacher's reference guide was my attempt at synthesizing and distilling these important ideas in these various books into one manageable resource. You mentioned complexity. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are just unfamiliar uh, with that as a whole and for, for them wanting to even explore it further we had on Brian A. Arthur I'll link that up so what drew you to complexity at the beginning not much to be honest with you I had gotten to know uh, I read a little bit about the Santa Fe Institute and they had a couple fascinating people and read a couple white papers on them and read one book by Mitchell Waldrop called complexity that just blew my mind and that led to probably 10 other books on this same topic and I just went really deep. And I think the the language, you know, chaos theory, uh, order, complexity, balance, emergence, all these things have such a deep and important role in our day-to-day -day lives. And again, at least for me in my formal education, I had never heard any of these terms. And it seemed crazy to me that so many of these important topics were, at least in my experience, never covered. And that felt like such a, a fruitful, deep dive for me. And now, I, I always love hearing the topics that just garner people's attention and interest. You mentioned writing being a difficult process for you. So what is that creative writing process like for you? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know if I'm good enough of a writer or have been doing this enough to really offer anything helpful here. But for me, the, the topics of the essays come about somewhat organically over time. It's an idea that I've had in the back of my head, or it's a pattern I've recognized from a couple of different books or different experiences that I want to try to understand better. And it's a little bit different. I can't say that it, the same process every time, but usually I distill, I create a Word document with a bunch of different notes and questions and quotes that I know I want to tie in together somehow. And when I have the the energy and the mental space and the um, the joy of sitting down and creating and trying to write one of these essays, it, it comes about. But uh, painful might have been the the wrong word. It's uh, it's a it's a long process. I enjoy every part of it, but it, it, writing definitely isn't natural to me. And one thing that I try to I learned from Paul Graham and a couple of others is just simplify, simplify, simplify. And if I notice that. I'm repeating a message or that I'm using the wrong word or trying to be too fancy or whatever it is, just to go back and make it as simple as possible. So that that simplification, that reduction process is what takes time for me. So you distill everything, you pull it all together into a Word document. Are you sitting down at one time then once all that's compiled and essentially coming out with that end product essay? I would say once it's all compiled, I get the overarching theme, kind of the, the overview that <clears throat> I want to cover and how I want to cover it. But then I might write it, <clears throat> excuse me, from start to finish, but it's probably five, six, seven, 10 different times I need to reread the whole essay from start to finish. And that process helps me reduce, reduce, reduce and share with a couple of people I trust and they give me good feedback. But um, it's definitely not a, a sit down for three hours and crank this thing out. It's more sit down for an hour, half an hour, five, six, seven different times and getting a slightly different perspective and different mindset on it before I share it. I would love to hear about just sitting down at different times with those different mindsets. I, I'm telling you, there's times I've written something and then even within the same week, I sit back and I say, well, where was I at when I was writing this? What's going on here? Does that, did that ever happen to you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And something that feels amazing and inspirational and so deep in the moment you come back even later that day or you know tomorrow and like you said you know what was i thinking that doesn't make any sense so yes that that absolutely resonates it doesn't just come out fully formed and um and well written at least uh, my attempt at well written it takes it takes considerable effort and time to get there yeah i know i think anything meaningful in life uh, usually takes some time and uh, some revisiting there so one of the things I love is just around your growth mentality, taking on new challenges. And we're going to get into the lattice work here in a second. But but where does that mindset come to take on new challenges? Yeah, I learned I learned in my senior year of college, and it's a really short TED talk that I learned, but um, it got me excited, and I wanted I wanted that monthly challenge. It it was exciting to me to try to learn new things on a kind of systemic basis. And only in hindsight would I really be able to sort of understand this and explain it, but it's also given me an excuse to try and fail things, right? So these things that I do every month, they're not part of my ego. They're not part of my identity. They're, they're things I'm trying to learn. And if I fail and never do it again, that's okay too. It was just a monthly challenge. And it, it gives me that space. And we've talked about space a couple of times now, but it gives me space to, to try and fail. It gives me space to uh, try something new, something that I otherwise probably would never give myself the time to do. So it's been really fun and it's, um, I think it's resonated with a lot of people. When I share the monthly challenges, it's fun to see how many people reach out and say, oh, I've always wanted to try that or, hey, you should check out this resource or did you do this or look at this? And it, it's a fun way to build a little bit of a community around something relatively silly and um, joyful little uh, pursuit like that. Yeah, I think those little things are so important that the beginner of mind, the Shoshin, uh, and just having that ability and willingness to fail but I want to take and dive into one of the big things you're doing now, and that's the lattice work, which I just think is going to be one of the fundamental learning keys uh, for everyone moving forward. So I'd love for you just to give even a high level overview of what the lattice work is, and then we can dive into to some of the fun we're going to have with it. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I am really excited about this. So on a really high level, the lattice work is a multidisciplinary resource and community that's looking to interconnect and explain valuable ideas. Now, on a high level, what we're looking to do is create a, a learning roadmap, right? What are the, the big ideas from the di big disciplines? That's our tagline. And the really fun thing about this, Sean, is by hosting it online and by making it uh, an organic, dynamic, breathing organism in a lot of ways, it doesn't become static and outdated. So if there are ideas or even entire disciplines that we don't cover today, 
with the community's involvement and people engaging with it, we can shape this together over time. So, you know, I am no expert in any of these ideas, right? I'm just someone who's curious and has read a lot and the, the disciplines and the ideas that are covered today, um, they evolved or they were, they were gotten from patterns that I saw emerge from all these books and all these things I've read and learned. But I'm hoping that together with the community's engagement and involvement that we can create something really beautiful over time, something that adds a ton of value, a learning roadmap that shows people where to start, you know, how do you focus your time? Where do you, what should you learn about when it comes to physics or math or chemistry or game theory or any of these things? So that that's my high level overview and hope for this project is that it becomes a, a useful resource, a useful guide for people to understand how to spend their time and what to learn. Why is it called the lattice work? Yeah. So this is taken from Charlie Munger and he has this idea that you need a lattice work of mental models in your head in order to make them useful, in order to make them applicable. And for me, a lattice work wasn't something I intuitively understood. But if you imagine a crisscross pattern that is sometimes used in gardening or home improvement, it allows vines to grow up it, it allows you to hang things off of it. And what he means with a lattice work is just a structure to hang ideas. So it's really hard to understand and recall anything if ideas are just floating around aimlessly in our heads. So what we need to do with this lattice work or this mental structure framework, whatever you want to call it, is create this structure that we can hang new ideas off of. So previous knowledge allows us to learn new things. And that's where this idea of compound learning really starts to take off, where the more we learn, the more we can learn. It's not magic. It's just that we have more hooks to hang ideas off of. And that's what the lattice work is hoping to help people to achieve. It's not just a, uh, a one, a one discipline focused area or uh, just focus on physics. It's really interconnecting all these different disciplines, helping us to understand how they're interconnected, why they're important, how they apply to our lives. Um, so making these on, on paper, these theoretical ideas, tangible, concrete, applicable to your day-to-day -day life, that's a, a huge and core part of what we're trying to help solve here. Yeah, two of the really big things there are just the broad frameworks that allow us to compound that knowledge. I think that's been really helpful for me, especially with, with the previous site, the rabbit hole, which is obviously going to be ongoing here, but just tying in some of those big mental models and then seeing how they apply across all different fields where, where concepts from physics that I thought had no applicability in my life all of a sudden, like once you become aware of these, these, these fundamental shifts of, oh my gosh, I, I see this everywhere. It's so helpful. So, so you mentioned some of these broad themes and then you hit on some of these mental models. What, what are some of the broad concepts that when someone goes on to the lattice work, they're going to see and, and come across right away? Sure. So the one that we're giving away for free right now, and uh, we're doing a, an early release with a wait list. So all you need to do is give your name and email, and you'll get access to what I think is one of our most valuable disciplines, which is called worldly wisdom. So one step back, a discipline is the overarching theme. And then there are ideas within that discipline, right? So within worldly wisdom, we have things like the lattice work that explains what a lattice work even is and why it's important. We have mental models. We have something called the three buckets. We have advantageous divergence. We have Lollapalooza effects. We have all these ideas that fall into that worldly wisdom discipline. And that's just the start. And we start with that and we're giving that away. Again, I, I really believe it's one of the most valuable things that we're, and we're gonna always give it away for free, but it, it serves as the foundation for our lattice work. If we can understand these core ideas, I think it helps pave the way for future understanding for a more seamless path that we can come to understand some of these disciplines and ideas and how to learn them and how they're applicable and why they matter. So that's why we start with worldly wisdom. But after that, we're going into things like physics and talking about Galilean relativity and velocity and the laws of thermodynamics and motion. And again, we learn about a lot of these things in school, but at least in my experience, I never understood why they were really important, right? They seemed isolated. They seemed esoteric and it was, okay, I'm going to learn these ideas good enough to pass the tests, And then they're sort of out of my brain. But with the lattice work, what we're trying to do is help you understand how they interconnect to different ideas. So how does velocity tie into business? How does velocity tie into relationships? And when you see those interconnections and you understand these ideas at a, a basic level, you don't have to be an expert, but at a basic level, it helps you see why they matter. And again, core to this whole thing is making it applicable to your day-to-day -day life. So not just beautiful on paper, not just theory, but pragmatic, helpful solutions that you can use every day of your life.
yeah, that's the key. It's, it's got to be applicable and be able to be used. It's funny. You, you mentioned some of those terms, and I'm sure some people are like, what are they talking about? This has no relevancy to my life. And a number of years ago, I thought the same thing. And then I explored these further and further, and what this is what the lattice work does, and it's so funny. I, I'd bring up some of these concepts, like Galilean relativity to my wife, and at first she's looking at me like I have four heads, and now she's just like, yes. These are everywhere. These are so applicable to me as a, as a mom, as a learner, all these different things. And that's what I love. And you're bringing this to light. And you, you mentioned a word a few minutes ago, um, and we both are huge admirers of Charlie Munger. So I would love for you to dive further just to give the listeners a preview of what some of these things are. And that's the Lollapalooza effect. Can you hit on yeah. that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. So in a lot of ways, Lollapalooza comes from a term that we've covered just really briefly in uh, a teacher's reference guide on complexity, but this idea of emergence. So the idea is that sometimes one plus one does not equal two. Sometimes the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's what Mr. Munger gives a, uh, a fun and easy to remember name, the Lollapalooza effect. So that comes, it happens in nature all the time. And in business, that's what a beautiful culture does, right? You might not have a, a team of superstars, but they gel together and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And in a lot of ways, that's what I'm hoping to achieve with the community that is built around this. So it's, this is not meant to be, and I don't want it to be Bloss's lattice work. I want this to be the lattice work, something that's co-owned and used and uh, engaged with by a broader community that cares about these ideas. And Lollapalooza effects, I think, can come in if we get the right culture, the right people involved and have people engage with it so that this, again, is a dynamic, living, breathing thing that continuously is refined and made better over time and not just a static blog post with a couple ideas that people don't visit, right? I want people to feel ownership of it. I want them to feel like they're part of something. And, um, you know, a lot of hopes and a lot of ifs, we have a, a long way to go to, to build something that can be that robust and that valuable, but that's, that's the vision. That's what I'm hoping to achieve with this thing. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to hear about and just even understanding evolution and, and how we, we hope this can come to be as a broader part of this community. The community element, can you even go a little bit deeper there and how people can get involved and what does involvement look like? Yeah, absolutely. So this first phase of our release is just the resource. So I don't want people to get uh, walk away from this with the wrong idea. But right now, it's just the resource and worldly wisdom everyone has access to. But you get a really good sense for who we are and what we're hoping to achieve and a sense for our aesthetic and our goals and um, some of the ideas that we cover. The, the next phase, Sean, is the community aspect that you're talking about. So we're, we're building a tool right now that will allow people to highlight, comment, engage, uh, create groups, be able to really make their own mark. You know, it's like reading the book, like we talked about earlier, you're having a, a conversation with the author. It's not just a passive learning experience, it's active. And the additional benefit that we have by hosting this online is that you turn a single player game, sitting down by yourself and reading a book into a multiplayer one. And again, so many of these beautiful threads we've touched on, Sean, like finite and infinite games and um, you know, this multiplayer game, zero sum versus positive sum, um, <clears throat> it feeds into everything that we're doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's what I'm so excited about with this is we really do have the opportunity, I think, again, right community, right culture, right incentives to build something that is continuously improving, something that's always evolving and iterating. And again, with this tool that we're building and getting the right people involved early on and making sure we, we set those culture, the culture and the, the incentives properly from the early days, that I think might lead to Lollapalooza effects. Yeah, get, get the structure right early on. You, you mentioned just that active learning and the continuing improvement, and that's something you've actually really helped me do. And I think that's why the community element of this is so important. It's one thing to, to read a book, sit there with your own thoughts. You can only tease out so much. Um, so, so actively being engaged with that community, hearing others' perspective, triangulating those views is so important. And, and one of those things recently you've actually really helped me see just a little bit differently was a term we mentioned a minute ago, and that's Galilean relativity. So I, I would love for you, because I'm sure a lot of the listeners are unfamiliar with this concept. Can you hit on what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, a bit of a sneak peek since we're not releasing physics yet, but I think it's maybe it's one of the top five most important ideas, I would say that we cover in this whole thing. <clears throat> and we talk about physics and you mentioned it at first, right? Most people hear Galilean relativity and physics and they turn off, right? Again, I'm not a physicist, not a scientist. Why does this apply to me? I don't get it. I understand that. And I was there recently too, but I think there's so much to be gained from learning the, the core basic, the uh, basics, the fundamentals, the core ideas of these different disciplines. So 
with Galilean relativity, very simply is you can never really truly grasp a system that you're a part of. So, you know, imagine you're on a, the hull of a ship or on an airplane, you're sitting there and it feels like you're not moving at all, right? Uh, maybe airplane is a better example. Of course, you're moving hundreds of miles an hour, but when you're sitting there on the airplane, it feels like you're sitting still, but anybody on the ground sees you moving again at, at hundreds of miles an hour. And the same thing happens in our day-to-day -day life. And it's become sort of cliche, right? Like, what do you wish you knew at 20 years old? What do you wish you knew at 30 years old? It's the same phenomenon. And, you know, I think the, the beautiful story here is you look back to your 18, 20 year old self, and there's of course things you regret, right? Nobody has, uh, nobody has the perfect life where every decision they've made is proper. And you look back now at 30 years old and you say, oh, Gloss, you're such an idiot. How could you do that? And without a doubt, 40 year old Gloss will look back at 30 year old Gloss and say, oh, you're such an idiot. How could you do that? And it's this Galilean relativity. We all fall into the same trap. We can't ever fully understand or grasp a system we're a part of. And that's where having a community, that's where having people who love you, that's where having a support system, that's where honestly being multidisciplinary really helps because you're, you're changing your perspective. You're getting fresh eyes. You're getting a, a new look at the same situation. So you have different frames. You have different filters. You have different ways of looking at the same problem and coming up with a either a novel solution, a creative solution, or just something that works. It doesn't need to be rocket science, right? It could be a, a very simple solution, but is overlooked because people are entrenched or they're experts or there's only one right way to do it. But by giving yourself this multidisciplinary view, you give yourself at least a greater chance of escaping Galilean relativity, of seeing different people's perspectives, different ways of approaching problems. Oh, no, absolutely beautifully encapsulated there. And I, I think that's so important, even just the, the broader theme there of being open to others' views and not just being so hard and steadfast on ours. And I think being able to, to look at some of these models and these frameworks really help tease that out. So I'm really hoping that a lot of the listeners are, are excited about this. And they want to learn more. So where can we direct them? Because I, I've said it, I'll say it again. Uh, you were fortunate or I was fortunate enough to see a beta version. And I truly believe this is fundamentally going to change how many people learn moving forward. So how can the listeners stay connected, learn more about the lattice work? Thanks, Sean. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. Uh, the, the website is LTC wrk.com and the same Twitter handle. And that's sort of our, our main places to discover us right now, but you'll get a really good understanding of who we are and what we're going for. If you go to the website, um, we're really excited about this. And again, it's, it's early days and we have a, a lot to do, but we think there's a ton of optionality here. And um, again, we're, we're biased, but I think there's a really a lot of value to be gained from this and looking forward to, to building the community around it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But Bloss, uh, I'm not going to let you go that easy because you're, my, you're <laughs> one of my favorite thinkers. So there, there's a few things I would love to just nerd out with you on uh, for a few minutes here. And so so a recent person we both became really deeply fascinated with uh, was Hawk. But I would love to know, and you mentioned Ford Firestone, who are some of the other thinkers, uh, leaders throughout the years that you just have really taken a lot from? Yeah, I think this idea of exemplars is incredibly important and we can learn from the living or the dead. There's no, uh, that's a beautiful thing about books, right? It allows you to peer into somebody else's mind. So uh, Lincoln, Franklin, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, uh, Paul Graham, Naval Ravikant. I mean, all these people have had a deep, deep lasting impact on me. Richard Hamming, we talked about earlier, uh, Mr. Munger and Mr. Kaufman with Porcelli's Almanac. All these things are deeply influential on me. And sometimes it's just embedded deep on my psyche and I can't point exactly to why or when or what it is about them that has done so. And sometimes it's pretty explicit, but I think that's one of the key things with being able to read and dive deep is it, it informs your, your thinking, your operating system, your kernel at such a deep level. And again, sometimes you can pinpoint it and other times you can't, but exposing yourself to these different thinkers, these different ideas and um, really getting a peek into their brain and how they think about things to me has been so exciting. And that, that's what these book summaries, that's what these reference guides help me do is it, it gives me a, a way to understand how different people think. And that to me is, is really exciting. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do as well, which is probably why, why your work resonates so much with me. And, and so many of these leaders just have these, these unique skills as well. Um, and so I know you've teased out a lot within yourself. What do you feel are just some of your, your greater strengths? Because you certainly have things you do incredibly well. And I would just love to hear you self-assess what you think those might be. <laughs> uh, thanks, Sean. Um, I, 
I, I guess I would give myself two things. I'm not afraid of hard work, um, whether it's tennis or reading or learning, or is, I'm just not afraid to sit down and do the work. My dad has this beautiful saying that I grew up with. Um, he's Venezuelan. So the, the saying is, el flojo trabaja el doble. And very simply, it means the lazy man works twice as hard. And I never really understood that, but there's a, a simple example. We're flying to some junior tennis tournament and you weren't allowed to have liquids in your bag. And, you know, I said, ah, I can sneak through security. It's just one bottle of water. I left the bottle, bottle of water in my bag, let it go through the scanner. And of course they caught it and put me towards the back of the line. That line was now an hour and a half long and it caused us to miss our flight and it was a huge pain. So I was lazy in the moment, right? It would have taken me a minute to throw out that water and refill it up. And instead I tried to be the lazy man and I worked, uh, I worked twice as hard, right? I had to go through the line, I missed the flight. It was stressful, it was annoying. And that simple anecdote has stayed with me for a really long time. And I see it in myself and I see it in other people that the inclination is to try to find a way around the hard work. And so often, if you just sit down and do it, it's actually less effort. And uh, anyway, so I, I've taken that to heart. And rather than, you know, oh, how can I get around this? Is there a way, you know, I don't really need to do this. I just sit down and do it. And again, I'm in a fortunate position where I get to choose a lot of that, which, you know, a lot of people aren't. And I recognize that. But being being in that position is, is certainly helpful. The other thing is, I'm no... I'm not smart enough to make things really complicated. I see things really simply. And I think it's a, it's a benefit in a lot of ways. And maybe it comes through some of the essays and it, it's definitely been honed over time as I've read all these books and, you know, written a lot to get to the essence of something. So I keep things really simply. I try to, at least I think relatively simply. Um, and I think those two things kind of come through uh, trying to get to the essence and, you know, there's so much noise out there and, one thing the rabbit hole and definitely the lattice work is trying to accomplish is getting down to the essence of these things. What is, what do these ideas really mean in as simply, as simply as possible and as approachably as possible, as applicable as they could possibly be. So I don't know if I have any superpowers, but I guess if, um, if I were to give myself two, those two might be top of the list. No, those are the two very good strengths to have. Yeah. You mentioned your father, you also have a, a big life takeaway from from your mom. I'm pretty sure your mom's name is Karen, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's I, right. I would love for you to hit on this because I think when other people hear this, it's just, oh, so simple, but this could really change your life. I'd love to, for, for you to hear or describe Karen filling up other people's cups first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny. When I asked my mom about this, she hardly remembers ever saying it, but it was one of those things that's just stayed with me forever. And again, like you said, it's a really simple idea, but her whole thing is you need to fill your cup before you can possibly fill others' cups. And what she means by that is you need to have self-love, self-compassion um, in order to be able to give any of that away to other people. And I think, at least for me, when I had this idea or mental model or this framework, call, out, call it whatever you want, it was pretty easy to see other people whose cups weren't full, right? They had this uh, scarcity mentality where they were hoarding things all the time, whether it was love or attention or compliments or uh, knowledge or whatever it is, right? They, their cup was half full, so they, they had this scarcity mentality. But these people with a full cup, there's, they're playing a, an infinite game. They have a, um, you know, a, a non-zero sum mentality, meaning that just because I have an idea, if I share it with you, doesn't take away from what I have. In fact, it increases it. And again, such a simple idea. But for myself, I think it changed, helped me think about these things that I do for me that help me become a better person, or at least what I think is a better person. I thought of that as <clears throat> selfish in a lot of ways at first, taking all this time just for me to improve myself, to, to dive deep into me. But this changed the frame a little bit where what I was doing for me actually would end up helping others. And that's why I, I think Mr. Moner and a lot of people saying that education is actually a, a moral act. And I think it ties together with what my mom was saying with her full cup is we need to improve ourselves. We need to fill our own cups before we could possibly fill others. So simple anecdote, uh, but it, it's resonated a lot with me. And um, it seems like it's hit home with you too a little bit. And uh, that makes me happy. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a beautiful visual. If you can think about your cup being overflowing and can just fill so many others. And believe me, you're filling others' cups. You, you've been so kind with your time. Uh, when I'm trying to tease out an idea or something, jumping on the, on the phone and, and talking things through, and then just the amount that you've put out there in the world. Uh, I know it's been incredibly helpful for me, a lot of my loved ones. And I know there's so many people out 
there that's also impacted greatly. Um, so I, I would love to hear though, as we're, we're ending this and wrapping it up, you've mentioned a lot of people. If you just had to sit down with one of them um, for an evening, just a relaxing conversation, dead or alive, can't be a family member though. Who, who do you think you'd elect to, to sit down with? It's a hard question, Sean. It's a good question. Um, off the top of my mind, though, Lee Kuan Yew comes up. And I lived with my family in Singapore for three or four years. And my dad actually overlapped with him a little bit. So we, you know, I couldn't say we got to know him, but I, I got to meet him. And I just think he's the greatest nation builder of the last couple of centuries. And what he's been able to do with this tiny wastewater of an island in, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia and turn it into really a, a powerhouse in a lot of ways for their size and for their natural resources, I think is just fascinating. And such a pragmatic, um, beautiful thinker. There was no BS. There was no, uh, you know, beating around the hedges. He was a, a harsh guy in a lot of ways. But I think learning from him and how he came to be and how he thought would be really fascinating. No, I, I, would, I would love to be able to sit in on that conversation. You might know this. Did he just come out with a new book that just hasn't been translated into English yet? I don't know. I just thought I, thought I saw something. But uh, yeah, I'll dig in. I'll yeah, yeah I, I hope so. This is this has been so fun for me. This is something that I've been looking forward to. I've learned so much, like I said, uh, both with the rabbit hole and then obviously the lattice work, uh, only seeing the beta version and what's going to come. But I, I love that you, your cup's full. Um, you love life. You love exploring new things, ideas, and that just continues to overflow into so many other people's lives. So I just wanted to thank you. I, I know I've said that, but it really has meant a lot both to my life, my family's life, uh, my friends, deeply influenced by you. So thank you for that. That means a lot, Sean. It, uh, that's what I'm hoping to do with all this, right, is uh, add value to other people and help in any small way that I can. So uh, sincerely, thank you. That, that means a lot. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, where should everyone be going? Uh, I know we linked up a few things. Uh, anything you want to leave the listeners with and, and direct them towards? Yeah. Again, uh, nothing done by brute force ever lasts. I really believe that. But if the lattice work resonates with you and you want to learn a little bit about it and who we are and what we're going for, that's my my labor of love, my passion project these days. And I'm excited about it. I think the optionality is pretty huge. It can draw together a fascinating group of people. And um, if there's one ask, it would be just to check it out. And if it interests you to, to dive in, but uh, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you mentioned, Bloss, the, the worldly wisdom, it's up there for free. So I, I truly recommend everyone should dive onto that website. Check it out. We'll have it linked up in the show notes. But once again, Bloss, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. It was a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.